0: Well, we come now to a most important topic for metaphysics, particularly for metaphysics as it is taught by Thomas and Aristotle. And the topic that I have in mind can be summarized in a phrase that St. Thomas took from Boethius, diversum est esse et id quod est, the famous distinction between essence and existence. This is often portrayed as a very esoteric claim and an achievement of high abstraction. For Thomas Aquinas, as for Boethius, it's a self-evident truth, that for a thing to be and what it is differ. Being is that which exists, a thing that has existence. That's what we mean by being. So existence is the ultimate actuality of the thing. But while existence enters into our account of being, a being is that which has existence, that which exists. Although it enters into our account of being, existence is not of the nature of the existent thing. If it were, the thing would exist necessarily. So that a physical object, something that's coming to be as a result of a change, would be a primary instance for us of what a being is. What do we mean by a being? A being is that which exists. If existence were part of what that thing is, it could not not exist. For it to be would be necessarily the case. But by definition, we're talking about something that has come into being and will cease to be. So its existence is not a necessary existence. That is the initial and obvious meaning of the diversity claim between essay and id quod est. There's nothing esoteric about it. It's by way of being a summary of something which is obvious. Again, many of these obvious things in their expression might seem terribly sophisticated and learned to us if you went down to McDonald's and captured the attention of the other customers and then rolled your eyes and said, "diversumest semester essay, I did quote S, provided you weren't run out of the place, it would sound as if you were saying something rather important, or at least odd. Maybe it wouldn't help if you put it in English, that for a thing to be and what it is are different, maybe the meaning wouldn't be immediately grasped, but as soon as you unpacked it in terms of examples and so forth, your listeners would say, I knew that. Of course, everybody knows that. Existence can't be the nature of the thing because then it could not not be. So if there are contingent things, and most of the objects of our experience are contingent things, they can be or not be. Existence cannot be part of what they are. So existence is not expressed in the definition of the thing. It is not part of the substance or essence of any of the things of our immediate and obvious acquaintance. Now, in the material substance, if we want to get a purchase on what we mean by existence, of course, we have to look, first of all, to a material substance. And the constituents of the essence, the nature of a material substance, are what form and matter. Where is existence? Existence is the actual inherence of the form in the matter, for the form to be in the matter. That is the being of the resultant thing. So the form alone is not the existence of the thing. The matter alone is not the existence of the thing. They're being together, the inherence of the form in the matter. That is the actuality of the substantial of the physical object. And this being is its substantial existence. For Thomas, the phrase he uses here is esse substantiale, as opposed to what? As opposed to accidental being. For a thing to be white, for it to be here as opposed to there, for it to be large as opposed to small, these are modes of being which are not constitutive of it in a substantial way. We saw this when we reminded ourselves of the difference between incidental change and substantial change. So the only two kinds of existence there are are esse substantiale and esse occidentale. And if we ask where is this esse or substantial existence in the physical substance if it is not part of what the thing is, we say, well, it is the actual inherence of the form in the matter. And that gives us a controlled sense of what we mean by esse substantiale and if we're going to use existence of anything else it is going to have to be read off of that more obvious and available analysis more obvious and available for us that is the existence of physical objects is the inherence the actual inherence of the form in the matter so thomas summarizes this by saying existence is the actuality of all acts even of form So for the form to be in the matter, that is what we mean by the substantial existence. If it's a substantial form, that's what we mean by the substantial existence of a physical object. So the two modes of existence, the primary modes of existence, are substantial existence and incidental or accidental existence. And you might say, well, we've been talking about this all along. And indeed we have. We've been talking about beings. We've been talking about the things that exist. But when we analyze them, we are coming up with their essence, their nature. And we know that the things with which we begin are such that for them to be is not part of what they are. It's a surprise that they exist. It's not something that is just guaranteed by what enters into the definition of those things. That's why we say that their existence is... Contention. Now, in commenting on the text of Boethius, in which this little axiom, as Boethius calls it, which clues us to the fact that it is a self-evident claim, that to be and what a thing is are diverse. When Thomas is explaining that, commenting on it, as he does, he suggests this. You can think, and first of all, it's a kind of grammatical approach. We can think of to be as what it is grammatically, an infinitive. Now what do we mean by an infinitive? We mean something that isn't determined. It's sort of floating. And if you say, to be, to what do you refer? So Thomas says, think of the infinitive, and then we think of it as functioning within a sentence, as a copula, and it binds together the subject and the predicate. So we say, S is B. Now we have a finite form of to be, namely, is. And it is controlled or determined by what, Thomas? Well, by the subject on the one hand and the predicate on the other. So that the movement from the infinitive, so to speak, to the concrete use of the term is, is to give us a characterization of existence. And what characterizes existence is primarily form. And that's the basis for talking about the difference between substantial existence, substantial form, the actual adherence of the substantial form in the matter is the existence of that material substance, or incidental existence, the actual inherence of whiteness in this object is for it to be white. So existence, it would seem by itself, lacks character. It's the actuality of all acts, even of forms. But if we want to know what some determinate existence claim is, we have to ask, well, what is the thing that exists? So that while existence is not part of the essence of the thing, the essence of the thing looks to be a kind of characterization of existence, or as Thomas's model suggests, it limits the infinitive, to this mode of existence as opposed to that mode of existence. To be white, to be black, to be here, to be there, to be fat, to be thin. So the to be, the infinitive, is concretized and given a characterization as is fat, is thin, and so forth. Or, is man, is tulip, is alligator, and so on, for esse substantiale. So it's as if, The characterization of existence, even though it is the highest actuality in the thing, the characterization has to come from what it actualizes, what it actualizes. So in the phrase that Thomas devises to cover this, act is limited by potency and characterized by potency. That is, the actuality that existence is, is the existence it is, this act of existence as opposed to that, because of what it actualizes. And that's why we get this compound in the existent contingent thing of what it is and the fact that it exists. The one can't be reduced to the other. But when we have an existent thing, we need both of those. You couldn't just have existence, it has to be of a certain kind. This is captured in a phrase one often hears, that to be is to be something or other. To be is to be something or other. And for Thomas and Aristotle, to be is either to be a substance or to be an accident to be substantially or to be incidentally. There's no other possibility. I mention that because I could controversially suggest to you that there are people who have thought that Thomas was suggesting something else, that over and above esse substantiale and esse occidentale there is esse, and that's what he's really interested in. In terms of this physical object, the only esse that we have is esse substantiale and whatever incidental existences it might be subject to at any given point. Particularly in this final lecture, I'm taking some comfort from the fact that what I'm summarizing here and I'm doing just in thin air, I don't have a blackboard here, I don't have any graphics that I can help you with at all, but I'm taking more comfort from the fact that on our website you will find the lessons that go along with these videos so that whether or not you should take this course as one of our credit courses, you would find that those lessons, those explanatory lessons are accessible to you by means of your computer and of course you're welcome and urged now to go look at those because what I'm saying here in a very enigmatic way and I'm conscious of that, you will find somewhat less obscure in those lessons. So our first point is this, the diversity of essence and existence is a self-evident truth about the contingent things with which we begin. And if we ask what there existence is, we say it's the actual inherence of the form in the matter. Since there is substantial form and accidental form, existence will be measured by either the one or the other, and we will talk about substantial existence or accidental existence, incidental existence. If it is the case, as I insist, that the distinction between what physical objects are and the fact they exist is self-evidently the case. I mean, we know that, everyone knows that there is that different. This is taken up by Thomas, not simply to say obvious things about what is easily available to us, but because within the analyses of metaphysics, this is going to have an importance far beyond its initial evidence and obviousness in physical substances. We have seen that the procedure within metaphysics is to move from physical substance in terms of the analysis of them into their components of form and matter to the claim that that in them, which is most substance, is form, to the claim that if there are things that exist apart from matter and motion, we will be able to characterize them as subsistent forms. Now, when we think of that against the background of the obvious things that we would say about the difference between the essence and existence, the nature and existence of a physical object, we can see that we're going to have to tailor and adjust our language in order to talk about a separated substance in terms of its essence and existence. In a physical object, the possibility of its non-existing is to be found in its matter. If a physical object is a compound of matter and form, and if the matter is in potency to forms other than that which currently actualize it, the matter is the perpetual possibility of the non-being of this particular compound. So the contingent existence of material objects, we can find the source of it in their very essence and see why existence is not of their essence. When we talk about separated substances and subsistent forms where we no longer have matter as the possibility of their non-existence, the question would arise, well, does that mean we have to say that they're necessary beings? Is an angel, for example, this would be Thomas's example, is an angel a necessary being? Distinguo, as he would say. In one sense, yes. There is not within the nature of the angel a principle matter which is open to a determination other than that of, say, being Gabriel or being Raphael. So not having matter as a constituent, we can say the essence of separated substances, that is angels, are not open to change or to corruption. Does that mean that they're necessary beings Thomas doesn't want to say that, of course, because angels are creatures, and creatures are such that for them to exist is to depend upon something else. And if creatures were necessary in every way, then they would no longer depend on God, and we would have a very strange universe of a plurality of necessary things, presumably unrelated to one another, and the logical difficulties of that we won't pursue. But there are heavy difficulties that would await that. Thomas, at any rate, is going to ask himself, how is it that angels who are intrinsically incorruptible They do not have an intrinsic principle of ceasing to be, matter. How is it that we would say that they are contingent? The way in which he introduced the infinitive to be and the way in which it is constrained or shrunk or restricted to existence of a particular kind by the form that it actualizes comes to his aid here. And what he will suggest is this, and you'll find this in his commentary on Boethius. It's included in my Penguin reader of the selected writings of St. Thomas in this particular one. What he will suggest is this. For an angel to be, for an angel to exist, is for a form to be subsistent. That is, for Gabriel to be, for Raphael to be, for Michael, to be, we'll stick with archangel. For them to be is for a form, Gabrieli, to be Gabriel is actual, to be Michael is actual, and so forth. Now, what Thomas suggests is this. For them to be is to be in a certain way, for them to be in a certain way the existence of a particular angel, however high he might be, he might be the highest angel, is still a limitation on existence to the kind of thing that angel is. So there is, in the angel, in a very different way, but analogous to the difference in physical object, there is a distinction between to be and what they are. So that, Thomas extrapolates from physical objects where this distinction is self-evident between essence and existence. And in terms now of this very complicated expression of what an angel is, a subsistent form, he argues that since for an angel to exist is for it to exist as this angel and not simply as existence, we have here a distinction between essence and existence. Obviously all of this is opening the way to the ultimate application of this analysis. And that is the way in which we use the term being to refer to God. In physical objects, a being is a complicated thing that contains within itself the possibility of its non-being. In the case of the angels, we don't have that intrinsic possibility of non-being, but we have a restricted or a shrunk existence, so to speak. It's not existence in all its amplitude, but merely to be Gabriel or merely to be Michael. Merely here can sound very ironic to us. As opposed to what? Out of this emerges Thomas's proposal as to what the best name for God is, meaning the least inadequate name of God. And it comes out of this analysis, and it is this. We can think of God as existence subsisting, as existence in all its amplitude, existing, subsisting. So it's not a form that is subsisting, which is a mere mode of existing but this would be existence as such. Thomas's phrase is ipsum esse subsistence. And you see, the esse is the Latin infinitive. He's saying it's as if the infinitive were a substantive. And you can see how our language starts to battle with itself as we seek to extrapolate beyond it to speak of the reality of God. But Thomas feels guided here scripturally by the account that Moses was asked to take back to those who wanted to know, who's talking to you? Who's speaking to you? Where are you getting all this? And he was told, tell them that he who is has told you that. And it's as if existence, being, is God's proper name. As it's not the proper name of anything else, of any creature, not even of the highest angel, there is a gap between what the angel is and that it exists. There is in any angel, even the most perfect, a distinction, a real distinction between its essence and its existence. And the best way, Thomas suggests, of seeing what God is against this whole background, and we need this whole background, that we're now going to try to think through and beyond and to negate. We want to say, well, God is existence as such, unrestricted existence existence in all of its perfection, and not merely as this mode or that mode. Subsistent, subsistent existent. That Thomas refers to as haec sublimus veritas, the sublime truth. And he's referring to the biblical self-description of God as he who is. Some scriptural scholars have quarreled with this reading of the passage, no matter. The analysis that Thomas gives us works off of The way in which essence and existence are distinct, obviously so, in physical objects, less obviously and by way of extrapolation in the angels, and then in God, there is no distinction between essence and existence. For him to be, existence is what he is. There is no gap between the two. So he is a necessary being in the fullest and most complete sense of the term. This is the point of metaphysics, to move in this kind of graded fashion, in a kind of back and forth, we mean this, we don't mean it, to arrive at a way of talking about God that will not be impious, that will not suggest that God is a thing like other things. So we're trying to think beyond what we know. Kierkegaard says that when we talk about God, we're talking about the unknown, Well, we certainly are talking about the unknowable for us, except in this very oblique and indirect and imperfect way. But it's the best we can do. It's the best we can do. And as Aristotle says in this connection, what we're trying to do in metaphysics is to achieve such knowledge as the human mind can achieve of the divine. And from the point of view of lots of other instances of knowledge, science, mathematics and so forth, it is very imperfect. The arguments are indirect, they're kind of pushing beyond. We have to constantly be saying what we mean and what we don't mean. It falls short of the ideal of science in many ways. But Aristotle says what we're talking about here, what we're aiming to get some intellectual purchase on, some knowledge of, is the highest reality. And Aristotle says, a little bit of knowledge of God is preferable to a lot of very distinct knowledge of many other things. But of course, that's a false option, because philosophically, the only way we can get some however inadequate knowledge of God is by reasoning off of things other than God, namely his effects, his creatures. I've said several times that what we're trying to do when we do metaphysics is, to put it this way, to devise a vocabulary with which we can talk about immaterial reality and ultimately of God. And what we've been doing in the early part of this lecture indicates the kind of procedure whereby we move carefully from an analysis of physical objects to an extrapolation to talk about subsistent forms, too, to talk about God himself as existence subsistent or subsistent existent for whom there is no distinction between what he is and that he is. God is the only necessary existent par excellence. This procedure is something that warrants some comment just for its own sake. That is, the whole process whereby we seek to name God. What is generally true, what I have been saying is meant to underscore, is this. The only way we can talk about God and the only way he can talk to us about himself is by using a language, the terms of which, first of all, mean something other than God. That is, the whole problem in understanding the Bible, the whole problem of metaphysics philosophically, is to take terms, to take a language that was devised to talk about the things of our obvious and immediate experience, and to use that very same language to talk about God. There is no other possibility. This is why, in the Old Testament particularly, we get these very dramatic metaphors which are meant to express to us the relationship of God to the world and the relationship that we're supposed to have to him as the eyes of the servant girl are on the hands of her mistress, the way we attend to and are meant to be directed by God's guidance in our lives. So whether it's a matter of these great metaphors of the Old Testament, what is a metaphor? but to take terms which have an obvious concrete meaning and to try to use them to suggest a meaning beyond their first and obvious meaning. I was once in Athens, and I was standing on a street corner and wasn't looking as I should have been, and a truck roared by, and it nearly knocked me off my pen. And I looked up as it went by, and on the side of the truck was Meta Well, I was almost literally struck by a metaphor on that particular occasion and it took me a moment to figure out what metaphora meant. And it meant what? Transport to metaferein, to carry from here to there. And in a metaphor, the metaphor of metaphor is that we take a word from one setting and we use it in another and surprising setting to cast light on something to which the word normally doesn't apply. So that if Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's not literally a lion. But somehow in thinking of him through the lens of this term and its normal meaning, we get a kind of intimation of our Lord. So, too, when Christ teaches, he teaches in parables, he tells stories, he tries to get us to get some clue as to what he's talking about by beginning where we are and then using that language to point beyond at the great parable of the prodigal son, a story to which everyone responds. But as we hear it, as we reflect on it, we realize we're being told something terribly important about the relationship of man to God and God's infinite mercy. These are obvious points. The only language we've got is the language we've got. And the range and application of the language we've got is to the things of which we have experience. We don't have immediate experience of God. We don't have a word that just applies to him directly. Our only choice is to take words that have other applications and try to extrapolate them, use them to talk about God in a way that will not be impious, that will not be demeaning of God. This whole reflection is what Thomas is concerned with under the heading of analogy. Now, we mentioned earlier on that when Aristotle wanted to secure a sufficient, focus for the subject of metaphysics, he introduced the example of the word healthy, and the way in which it behaves is predicated of a number of different things, and said the word being is like that. So too, when Thomas talks about names that are common to God and creature, he invokes the same example. And so we want to watch the way in which the word healthy behaves, as said of a lot of things, the animal, its coat, its food, its exercise, and so forth. Watch how it behaves. It's not univocal, it's not purely equivocal, and that will give us a way of understanding how terms can be common to God and creature. Well, let's take one. We would say Socrates is wise and God is wise. So the question that arises is, what is the meaning of wise in those two uses? Does it mean exactly the same thing? Well, it can't mean exactly the same thing. Socrates wasn't born wise. He, by dint of laborious questioning and thinking, became wise became wise by realizing that he didn't know anything, uh, according to the Sybil, so that the Socratic wisdom consisted in the fact that not knowing anything, he knew that he didn't know anything, so he was wiser than the rest. Whatever. This was a realization that came upon him. Now, it could be that Socrates would grow old or he'd drink too much. He started drooling out of both sides of the mouth, and we'd no longer go to Socrates and expect wise answers from him. We might say, you know, I knew him when he was wise. So wisdom is something that Socrates achieves, acquires, and it's something that he can lose. That isn't what we mean by the wisdom of God. So we take, as we do in the case of healthy, we took, remember there, the denominating form, health, and we said it enters into a kind of completable frame, blank health, and we could have subject of health, That's what the term means as applied to the animal. Cause of health. That's what it means when it's applied to his food. Sign of health. That's what it means when it's applied to his coat or the sparkle in his eyes. That's a healthy look and so forth. We are able in terms of that same denominating form to give different modes of signifying it. Subject of, cause of, symptom of. And this is productive of different meanings, one of which is regulative and controlling of the others. You remember that analysis. Thomas now, when he's talking about names common to God and creature, reminds us of that and says, you know, that's useful here as well. And so if we take the term wise as common to Socrates and God, we can think of a completable form, blank, wisdom and say Socrates has wisdom and what do we mean by that? We mean that he has it in the sense that he acquired it and he could lose it. That's the mode in which he has it and it's distinct from what he is. It's an incidental characterization of Socrates. It's not a constitutive or substantial characterization of Socrates. So the mode of signifying of wisdom In Socrates is wise, we would build up in that way. What's the mode of signifying wisdom when we say that God is wise? We don't know. But what we can do is it doesn't leave us without resources. We can say it's not the mode that we ascribe to Socrates. So we first of all, in a time-honored triad, we first of all say, well, God is wise. If Socrates is wise, God is wise. There's something about the sense of the term wise, wisdom, that leads us to say that's an appropriate thing to say about God. And, of course, as believers, we will notice that it's attributed to God in the Scripture. So God is wise. We affirm that. But then thinking of what wise means in the case of Socrates, that we say, well, you know, he's not wise in that sense, or he's not wise in that way. So what further can we say? The third move is affirmation, negation, and then imminence. And we say God is wise in a way that surpasses our ability to grasp it. Unsatisfying? Of course it's unsatisfying. It would be strange in the extreme if we thought that God was an object of our thinking that we could just bring up on the screen, so to speak, and describe him in such a way that there would be no difficulty. The only way we can do it, this is the whole point of ontology is a condition for theology. The only way we can talk about God is by moving through what we know about God's creature. That was the point of the epistle to the Romans that we mentioned earlier that human beings can, from the things that are made, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. There's no other way. There's no other route. So no one has seen God and lived. So the only way we can know God is indirectly, obliquely, through the things that God has made. And they speak to us of him in some indirect and oblique fashion. We're not going to just use any term. We're not going to say God is mud and then say what sense of mud? No, we're just not going to use that one. If we say God is a lion, we say, well, that's a metaphor. We don't mean literally. But when we say God is wise, when we say God is just, when we say God is good, we mean to say something straight on. But as we analyze it, we say, well, we affirm it. But we're going to have to deny the created mode, the way in which that denominating form would be found in creatures. And then we're going to have to acknowledge that we cannot grasp the way in which that perfection is found in God. We end up, in terms of this analysis of divine names, with a plurality of them. We say God is just, we say God is good, we say God is one, we say God is wise, we say lots of things. Untutored, perhaps, just moving off our analysis of the good things in the things around us, or tutored by sacred scripture, which gives us any number of terms applicable to God. And the analysis that we're now talking about is common to the both. How do we understand them? How can we properly understand them so that we're not saying things improperly, or understanding God improperly. We have a plurality of terms. Now this is another way back to seeing how, for Thomas, ipsum esse subsistens is the most perfect name of God in the sense that it's the least imperfect. When we say that God is just, that term, given its origin, means something different from God is merciful. It means something different from God is good, or God is one, or that God is. These are different terms, they have different meaning. And even though we're trying to refer to the same thing, in all cases, the diversity, because of the origin of the meaning of these terms and creatures, the diversity is there. The danger of the plurality of the divine attributes is that we begin to think of God as a restricted mode of being. That's invited by the terminology. And we're trying to fight that and go beyond it. We're trying to negate it. And here, too, to see God not as this kind of existence, just, good, merciful, but existence in all its amplitude, where all of these perfections now are thought of as sort of rushing back into and filling out the infinitive that Thomas began with in that text that we looked at before. So that Christ, God, then is looked upon as the fullness of being. Pascal once spoke of le grandeur et la misère de l'existence, and the grandeur and the misery of being a human being. And Jacques Maritain, in his famous masterpiece, The Degrees of Knowledge, applied that to metaphysics and spoke of the grandeur et des misère de la metaphysique. And perhaps, if nothing else, these lectures have acquainted you with the misery of metaphysics. That is, how intrinsically unsatisfying it can be, even as we acknowledge that it is, in its unsatisfactoriness even, it is preferable to any number of other things that we might become knowledgeable about. I mentioned that suggestion. Aristotle, that a little bit of knowledge of God is preferable to all precise knowledge of other things. Aristotle likening the human intellect to divine reality as the eye of a night bird to the sun. There's just too much reality for us to grasp. But this is a false option, of course, knowing other things or knowing God. The only way we can know God is by knowing him through the things that he has made. And this is something that we see in terms of the very structure of metaphysics, as it's laid out by Aristotle and Thomas. The only way we can proceed is by analyzing being as being. And we want it as a subject matter which is broad enough so that when we see God as the cause of being, we don't think we've left anything out. But in order to get to that subject, as we've seen, we've got to proceed stepwise through a constant reminder of the kinds of being, the finite kinds of being, the material kinds of being, which is most easily accessible to us and which gives us a control over the meaning of the term as we extrapolate it and use it beyond. When the believer looks at what philosophy, what metaphysician can come up with by way of paying off on his aspiration to know what human beings can know about God, the believer is going to find this a very meager result. That is, when he compares it with the richness of what God has told us about himself in Revelation, this is going to seem like very thin gruel indeed. And many of the early fathers of the church have said, we don't need that. We have the truth itself as our teacher and there's no point in going through all these detours of philosophy and metaphysics and so forth. That's a possible attitude, but the attitude of Thomas Aquinas is rather this. He looks at this effort, particularly in Aristotle, and he's astounded by what it shows us of what the human mind can achieve. And he applauds it and recapitulates it just on that basis. Because it is such a revelation of what the human mind, which is immersed in a body, which is constantly surrounded by the distractions of physical things and all the needs and necessities of human life, nonetheless is able to lift the eye of the mind and arrive at reason and defensible knowledge however meager of God, this is, for Thomas, an astonishing thing. And it is important for him as a continuing possibility for the human mind. For Thomas to try to divorce the faith from such knowledge as we can have about the world and of God is always to court disaster and to suggest that the faith has nothing to do with what we know john paul ii has just issued as i speak a few days ago an encyclical called fides et ratio faith and reason it is magnificent and of course as we have learned to expect from him a very lengthy statement of the relationship between faith and reason philosophy and theology both of those and the faith and in it what is most striking about it and this has almost come to characterize I think the papacy in our days. We expect, of course, the Holy Father given his role to defend the faith, to proclaim the faith, to make sure that the faith is not being distorted. We think of that as his essential role, as indeed it is, as he tells us in his preface to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which takes its title from a phrase of St. Paul, the depositum fidei, the deposit of faith. It's essential that each generation of believers pass on this deposit of faith whole and entire to the next generation. So we expect that. We figure that's his job. Yeah, he should be proclaiming and defending the faith. But what has emerged and what stands out even more so in this encyclical faith and reason is that the church now emerges not simply as the defender of the faith, but as the defender of reason. The defender of reason. In Veritatis Splendor, the Holy Father came to the defense of the ability of the human mind to know settled and absolute truths about human behavior. And this independently of, although it's sustained and reinforced by Revelation, there is a natural law which enables each and every human being, each and every human being has the capacity to discern good from evil. This is something that is almost universally dismissed by moral philosophers. And the Holy Father in Veritas of comes to the defense of practical reason. In faith and reason, he's coming to the defense of theoretical reason itself. And he notes at the outset that we live in a time that depresses the young and those of us who aren't young with its nihilism and its relativism, its skepticism, the kind of lowering of expectation as to what the human mind can achieve. And at the outset of this encyclical, the Pope reminds philosophers of the great sapiential range, the great sapiential range that philosophy had. Philosophy meant to address the great question, what does it all mean? What is the purpose of human life? Is there a life beyond this one? What must I do? These are the questions that constitute a human being. We are those questions. And for philosophy to turn away from them, to dismiss them, to dissolve them in obscurity and skepticism is a terrible betrayal of what is most distinctive of human beings. And of course, it doesn't leave the faith untouched. If the human mind is treated in this way, if reality of the world is treated as something that we cannot get to, there is nothing, there is no purchase for revelation. Revelation, as I mentioned in talking about God, comes to us through talk about the world. If we can't know the world, if the world is mere fantasy, metaphors don't work, analogies don't work, the whole effort of revelation doesn't work. So I'm not suggesting that the Holy Father has an interested concern in defending reason. Reason is a good in itself, and it is that which makes human beings to be human beings so that it's in everyone's interest to come to the defense of reason, believer or not believer. But it is the case, as Kierkegaard said, the reason we've forgotten what it is to be a Christian is that we've forgotten what it is to be a human being. And the Holy Father has kind of the obverse of that, that apart from the revelation of what human nature is through Christ, we don't understand what we are. He's not suggesting in any way that just natural reason is going to be all we need, but we have to come to the defense of what it can achieve, and he does that, and he does it magnificently here, to insist again upon the range of reason, the capacity of reason. Because with Thomas Aquinas, our whole tradition is that faith is an intellectual virtue. Faith is an intellectual act prompted by grace. The intellect is moved to assent to reveal truth by the will, moved by grace. But it is an intellectual assent. It is an acceptance of the truth. The object of faith, Thomas insists, is truth, truth itself. And, of course, we all remember Christ's definition of himself as the truth and the truth that will set us free. Only a robust sense of reason, in short, and the concept of the range of reason is going to provide us with the necessary reference point to show how much more the faith is than reason and how different the faith is the knowledge of faith is from the knowledge of philosophy but you have to have both of them if you're going to have anything like a healthy contrast between them so it is true that believers are going to find in philosophical theology the culminating achievement of philosophy, one reaction we're likely to have is that that's not much, is it? That's really not very much. The other reaction, as I suggest, is that of Thomas. Think how much an Aristotle was able to grasp about the divine without the aid of grace, without the aid of revelation, just on his own. It gives us an insight into the capacity of human reason, even in its sinful condition that Thomas rightly marveled at. And this is what faith and reason comes down to, an appeal to a defense of the range and character of reason. Now this Holy Father, as we know, uh, can't write anything without eventually bringing the discussion back to the Blessed Virgin. And so it is with the ending of this great encyclical, and I propose to end my lectures by citing here the final paragraph of this encyclical. He says i turn in the end to the woman whom the prayer of the church invokes as the seat of wisdom and whose life itself is a true parable illuminating the reflection contained in these pages for between the vocation of the blessed virgin and the vocation of true philosophy there is a deep harmony just as the virgin was called to offer herself entirely as a human being and as a woman that God's word might take flesh and come among us, so too philosophy is called to offer its rational and critical resources that theology as the understanding of faith may be fruitful and creative. And just as in giving her assent to Gabriel's word, Mary lost nothing of her true humanity and freedom, so too in philosophy he's the summons of the gospel's truth Its authority is in no way impaired. Indeed, it is then that philosophy sees all its inquiries rise to their highest expression. This was a truth which the holy monks of antiquity understood well when they called Mary the table at which faith sits in thought. In her they saw a lucid image of true philosophy, and they were convinced of the need to philosophare in Maria to philosophize in Mary. Well, one who has spent his life philosophizing at the University of Notre Dame can easily respond to the admonition that he philosophized in Mary. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward donate to help us keep this content free.